Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. I'd like to welcome you to the FCPA Compliance Report. First, have you ever thought about starting your own podcast? You wanted to talk about something in the compliance or compliance-related field, but really had no idea how to get started? Take a listen from our sponsor, One Stone Creative. If you are enjoying this show, you might enjoy hosting your own. As an expert in your field, you have skills, knowledge, and insight that can help you expand your practice, meet new people, and create amazing content to share with the world. In as little as two hours a week, you can dramatically change how you promote, fill, and position your business, and One Stone Creative can show you how. Learn more at onestonecreative.net. In this episode, I visit with Miller and Chevalier lawyers James Tillon and Mark Bone on the firm's 2019 FCPA Winter Review. Miller releases an FCPA review quarterly each year, and it is one of the top reports on what is going on in both FCPA enforcement and wider international anti-corruption enforcement and development. This is something that every CCO and compliance practitioner and, frankly, outside counsel needs to consider in both creating a compliance program and updating it on a proactive basis. I know you will find it useful. I link to the FCPA winter review in the show notes. This conference will now be recorded. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox back for another episode, and you're in for a real treat today because I have with me James Tillon and Mark Bone, both uh, lawyers at Miller and Chevalier, and we're going to talk about the Miller Always Excellent FCPA Winter Review 2018. Gentlemen, uh, first of all, uh, first, first of all, thank you for taking the time to uh, visit with me. But even more importantly, is the um, quarterly and annual Miller reviews are great. So thanks for putting this together for the uh, the greater FCPA and compliance community. Well, thank you for those kind words. We're glad someone reads it. It's a lot of work. Appreciate you having us on. Yeah, uh, and it's uh, it's a great resource. Um, Obviously, uh, talking about what happened over the past quarter, but frankly, throughout the year, uh, simply to, to give compliance practitioners the greatest uh, amount of information around enforcement actions, where compliance is going and, and where um, general anti-corruption is going across the globe. So if maybe we could jump into it. And let me just start off by asking, what are uh, some of the things that uh, you guys uh, wanted to highlight or perhaps more appropriately what did you feel like the report set out that uh, really uh, was a new or different analysis? I guess the, I think the, the case analysis we have is, is definitely worthwhile uh, to, to take a closer look at. But the one thing I think we'd highlight is we now have two years of data by which to evaluate uh, FCPA enforcement under the Trump administration. And so that, uh, gives us a little more data to, 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 to put behind uh, analysis as to where enforcement under the current administration is going, more so than we have in, 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 in uh, review or years past. Um, the caveat being, of course, that most of the cases we're looking at were initiated under the Obama administration's DOJ. So the next couple of years should be a little more instructive as we begin to see how investigations initiated under uh, Trump's DOJ are resolved. Um, but I guess the, the most interesting thing is that the data are mixed. There's some upward trends and there's some downward trends. Uh, for instance, over two years, the Trump administration has charged 24 companies for an average of 12 a year. That's down slightly from uh, around 15 companies a year that the Obama 
administration DOJ or Obama administration charge. Um, but this past year, the, 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 the Trump administration, the SEC and DOJ charged uh, 16 companies. And so that's actually slightly above the, the, the Obama administration average. Uh, the average corporate penalty imposed by the DOJ and SEC has been uh, was 66.9 million under uh, the, the years of the Obama administration. And in two years under President Trump, it's 78.4 million so far. So that's actually uh, increased. Um, and there's also been a significant uptake over the past couple of years in, in individuals charged by the DOJ, at least over the, 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 the years immediately pre preceding. And uh, I guess the final biggest takeaway is probably the drop in known investigations initiated. Um, in 2017, uh, the number of new investigations initiated and this is based on public reports, based on DOJ or SEC acknowledgement or wherever we can confirm the existence of the uh, investigation. So these numbers aren't perfect. But uh, in 2017, it remained on par. Over the past 10, 12 years, there's been about 30 investigations initiated each year that we can identify. And there was 30 in 2017. But that number dropped significantly in 2018. Uh, the, Note that we, because these numbers are inexact, we're waiting on new filings to come out, annual reports for 2018 that will come out. So there definitely could be additional investigations that were, uh, we identify that were initiated during 2018. But that number is probably not going to change drastically. So that, that reflects kind of an interesting data point that we aren't seeing as many investigations at least publicly acknowledged uh, initiated by this administration. And that could portend to to future enforcement activity. I'm sorry, I didn't pick up the number uh, of investigations you found open from tw in 2018. Could you give us that again? It's 10. 10, 10 we've identified thus far. And that's actually, we've been tracking this figure. We've got data going back to 2006, and that's the lowest year on record. Um, it's likely to go up a little bit as we as uh, new disclosures come out in the reporting for the first quarter but it's not going to go up as much as uh, the prior year. So it does suggest there is a downturn. Okay. Uh, well, that certainly uh, is interesting and um, bears watching. Would you anticipate also any changes from the, uh, in, in, although it would be reported in 2019, a calendar year 2018 uh, 10K filing? That's right. That's, so that's what we'd be, we generally get a lot of the information from the SEC disclosures. And so there's going to be a few more that we'll pick up in the first quarter disclosures. Uh, we also look at press reports as well as non-public sources. And so right now we're at 10, it will go up a little bit, but it's not going to reach that average of 30 that was um, in place uh, from since like say 2009. And so that's what suggests there's a downturn, and it may be that less companies, fewer companies, are self-reporting. Well, it's certainly a number that bears watching, and if we get that kind of number over two or three years, I think uh, we'll have to perhaps uh, reinterpret um, at least the self-disclosures and or reported investigation data. Right. Agreed. 
So uh, what I really wanted to visit with you guys about is um, you're both uh, white-collar uh, defense practitioners, uh, both handle FCPA cases literally across the globe. And the number of pronouncements by the Department of Justice uh, were significant in 2014, even if they were just a, a really a consolidation of, of ongoing informal policy. So I was been really intrigued about whether or not your professional advice uh, has changed for your clients, or are you talking about things like proactive uh, actions by your clients, proactive compliance, uh, more, more so now than perhaps in years past? We've always been beating the drama of the importance of effective anti-corruption compliance program. I think where now it might be an easier sell for some companies internally is because of the recent changes in DOJ policy statements, as you alluded to. So, for for example, the uh, corporate enforcement policy, the fact that there's a presumption for a declination if you can show cooperation and remediation and voluntary disclosure. Well, feeding into that remediation is is an effective compliance program. And then if you look at the um, uh, policy on monitors, the, the way that a compliance program can help you avoid a monitor, or the fact how they've stressed, uh, um, given some uh, comfort that conducting due diligence and M&A transactions and then integrating acquisitions into your compliance program can lead to a benefit and avoidance of successful liability. And so these are all points that suggest that your effective compliance program of course, can help prevent wrongdoing, but even if wrongdoing occurs, you can either you can maybe able to avoid uh, an enforcement action or or mitigate the fines and avoid a, a monitor. So we had, uh, as I mentioned, uh, several policies or additions to the uh, U.S. Um, Attorney's Manual. Uh, and some speeches last year, and uh, I, I really have to go back to the November 2017 FCPA corporate enforcement policy that was incorporated into the U.S. Attorney's Manual as a starting point, although I realize that was 2017, but in May we had the anti-piling on policy. In July we had the M&A policy, and then at the end of the year we had the modifications to the uh, to the Yates memo. Have any of those changed the 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 way in which Miller would not so much uh, advise a client, but actually do an investigation, or uh, do those uh, a company still has to do a robust internal investigation based upon the facts of each case? I don't think it's really changed the the approach significantly. What it may change is some of the black and white you can cite to and, and use in your discussions with the company and also with the DOJ and SEC, pointing to their own language in support of a, of a company advocating for uh, a declination or advocating to avoid a monitor, you have more to point to. Or, for example, if you're, if you're advising a company that's facing an enforcement action in multiple countries and, and pointing to the piling on policy and getting the DOJ on board with the fact that they, this is not something they need to pursue because other countries are are effectively prosecuting that activity. And so it gives you a little bit more ammunition, a, a little bit more clear statements than before, but it's generally the same approach. Yeah, I, I would say, I mean, these policies are welcome to our clients. They add 
clarity and 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 uh, can can give them peace of mind heading into negotiations and and heading into investigations where they make uh, decisions as to whether or not to disclose. Um, I, I don't think our clients uh, have had have any have, have seriously considered pulling back on compliance or uh, uh, robust remediation or, or cooperation in light of these policies. I think these just add add a little bit of peace of mind in terms of what they're already doing. I think w- without doing these things, you're not going to, without effective remediation and cooperation, you're not going to avail yourself of these the benefits of these new policies. I think when we begin the investigation, and James and I were just talking earlier, I mean, we, we generally advise companies to, to, as early as possible, begin remediating any potential misconduct that they identify to, A, prevent any ongoing violations during the course of the investigation, and B, if it ever comes to a, a negotiation with the government over settlement terms, you're in a position to kind of say you've already done all of these things, and, and hopefully that, that earns you some respect and, and, and is borne out in the settlement terms. So uh, let me turn to the Binkowski memo. I don't want to say that's controversial because in many ways I felt it was a, once again, a, a compilation or of uh, currently existing uh, informal policy or at least uh, where for, form was actually following the function. But one interpretation I've heard is that a company could use the Binkowski memo as a roadmap to help it avoid a monitorship if it finds itself in a FCPA investigation or enforcement action. I wanted to ask, uh, do you guys find that interpretation valid? And if so, what were some of the highlights for both of you all from the Benkowski memo? Sure, I think that is fair to say it's a roadmap, but it's a, a roadmap that generally was there before. It just gives you um, something to point out that's more explicit in the discussions with the DOJ. And I think it confirms a, a point that Mark was just making that compliance and remediation uh, needs to start as soon as possible in an investigation. The, 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 that's been all, always our approach, but it's even more, uh, you can, you can um, advocate, advocate for it more within the company by showing that it could lead to benefits. And so finding out what the compliance gaps and weaknesses were and addressing those gaps and weaknesses early on in the investigation so that by the time you're negotiating with the DOJ and SEC, you can point to those uh, remedial efforts. And the fact that this memo suggests that it, you know, they're not only looking at the state of the compliance program when the wrongdoing occurred, but what's happened since then. And it, if you can show that there, it is been an effective response in being able to avoid the monitor, I think that's particularly helpful. Yeah, and I don't think that's a bad thing. I, I would also note that uh, it, it's going to be fact dependent, and that this is the companies where the misconduct of issue is discrete or limited, or where they had a decent foundation of a compliance program in place, are going to be most, are going to be the best position to avail themselves of it. If corruption is endemic within an organization, if there are normal large-scale violations, uh, I, I think that. A company, even in that situation, with the benefit of the Vinkowski memo, may be hard pressed to avoid them all. 
So let me change the focus a little bit to uh, the term I like to use called regime change. And, and I do not mean uh, Saddam Hussein regime change, although I think many Americans think of regime change in that manner. I mean democratically elected uh, new leaders, whether that be um, in Brazil, where we had an election uh, in Malaysia, or where a, a party, a political party, chooses a new leader. Um who effectively becomes the president of the company. And there, of course, uh, South Africa, where the African National Congress changed leaders. And uh, I've been thinking a lot about regime change from the compliance and corporate perspective, because it seems to me that in the three countries I named, and, and perhaps even if we could look to the future a little bit, uh, Venezuela, if we have regime change there, one of the things we've seen the new leaders do is come in and investigate uh, prior leaders for corruption. Uh, this is not a, a lock, locker up kind of situation. This is where the prior leaders engaged in corruption. And, and obviously in those three countries I named, um, ongoing uh, corruption scandals and or investigations uh, permeated the organizations. But really from, from you guys, advisors as counselors, uh, how, do you, um, how do you advise a, a board of director, a senior management, or even a CCO to prepare for democratically elected regime change and what it might mean for their business uh, being investigated? Yeah, I, I think it's an opportunity to encourage them to do an, a risk assessment to evaluate the contacts that they may have had with the prior administration, the prior regime, and, and consider the risks associated with that. So, for example, in many of these countries, there's local content requirements, and often particular Often in these uh, countries, the choice of, of uh, local partners is limited, and you are often partnering with someone that does have connections to the regime. And hopefully you put in safeguards to address those and mitigate those risks. But with a regime change, it's, it's definitely time then to reevaluate that, to consider whether your safeguards are effective, consider the exposure that, that uh, may come from scrutiny on, on a local partner or a third party and whether you need to make any changes as a result. So that's the one, one step right there that can be done. And Mark, I know you had another thought when we talked about this earlier. Yeah, I guess on one note, we don't even need to point to, say, Venezuela as an example. Look at Mexico or Brazil. I mean, Mexico, with the change in regime, there was an enormous federal airport project outside of Mexico City that was canceled upon kind of in conjunction with the change in regime after it was determined that there was uh, improprieties in connection with the bid process on, on that project. And so uh, companies that may have bid on that will find themselves out of luck, whether or not they were involved in, in that misconduct. Um, but beyond uh, closely scrutinizing the partners, the local content issues that James mentioned, I think as an initial matter, it, it's one more reason for companies to avoid political activities, uh, political donations, other things like that, because uh, things can change quickly and, and you can find yourself on, on, on the opposite end of, of an administration and, and fairly or unfairly be, 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 be have your link to that prior administration scrutinized. Uh, beyond that, I think just seeking to operate in a transparent manner is, is one of the most important things a company can do. Uh, if a company is taking clear steps to ensure that it's conducting business in an above board manner, um, that any bids or contracts that secures or government interactions it engages in um, are, are going to present less risk. There's, you, you can never avoid risk. I think 
you, it's hard to predict what's going to occur in some of these situations, but you're going to position yourself as best as you can to, to weather that regime change. Now let me turn to Europe and GDPR, one of uh, certainly our favorite topics uh, these days. And I wanted to ask, have investigations in either the EU or the UK changed uh, for the firm or for your clients because uh, GDPR went live uh, nearly nine months ago, but it's been some period of time now? Yes, they've changed, but the effects haven't been as um, difficult as as we may have feared. I think for a few reasons. One is that the companies and multinationals have prepared significantly for this, and so they're well positioned and, and have done a lot of research and prep so that uh, it does uh, allow for the ability to preserve and collect documentation at the appropriate time. We've also done our research uh, as well. What it may do is slow up some of the initial phases, although frankly, because of the data privacy laws that were in place beforehand, it was always difficult. And so this just adds, adds another wrinkle to it. So it's, it's um, something that, yes, it's in the forefront of our minds. It affects investigations, but it's not, it's not a necessarily uh, a huge hindrance. James and I uh, were working on an EU-related investigation this past year in advance of GDPR uh, being implemented, and, and when privacy issues came up, there was an internal council within Europe with whom we worked on these issues whose sole job was to ensure compliance by the company. And so as we mapped out our investigative steps, we, we ran them through uh, kind of an internal uh, legal personnel who was able to assist us in ensuring that, that we were appropriately be, being sensitive to, to, to data privacy issues and in compliance with the law. Well, gentlemen, gentlemen, unfortunately, we're near the end of our time, but I've been visiting today with James Tillon and Mark Bone on the always excellent uh, Miller & Chevalier FCPA Winter Review 2018. We have just not even scratch the surface of the detail and information that's in the report. We're going to link to the report in the show notes, and I would uh, certainly urge uh, all of our listeners to uh, to take a look at it. It's once again a great report. And gentlemen, I want to thank you again for taking the time to visit with me today. It's our pleasure. Thanks very much for having us. Thanks, Tom. You always enjoy being on. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of the FCPA Compliance Report. As I said in the intro, I'm uh, looking for new podcasts. If you're interested in a podcast, producing your own podcast, and having a place to put it on the Compliance Podcast Network, please give me a shout. I hope you'll join me again next week for another episode of the FCPA Compliance Report. This has been a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.